In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. My lords and ladies, dear friends in Parliament, your excellencies, dear friends all, it's a blessing and a privilege to be here with you, and I want to pay special tribute to all of you, especially including my dear brothers, uh, their graces, the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Bishop of London, and many, many more in this room who have been instrumental in all that we do, we continue to do for our brothers and sisters, both in the Middle East and here. Just a special note to our friends who are running the technical support. Try not to adjust your sets, because those of you who don't know me, for the first few moments, this will look like a very badly dubbed movie where the picture does not go with the sound. We can't be here without paying special thanks to our friends here in Parliament. We often hold you to account for the decisions you make and then sometimes blame you. And we forget to hold ourselves to account to pray for you as you make those decisions. And I think in the coming weeks, those prayers are going to be more important because of the significant decisions that are going to be made. The scriptures tell us in the book of Acts that we first must look at Jerusalem, then Judea, and then Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. And so it would be improper for us to start speaking about our brothers and sisters in the Middle East without first praying for those who are here in these great houses, in this great nation, those who share with us as Christians, as people of faith, as people indeed of no faith, but as fellow humans along our journey. I also give thanks for the church's denominations, ecumenical instruments, and other groups of these nations who contribute so significantly not only to their own communities, but to the community at large, who are the foundation of so much that happens at a humanitarian level, at a support level, and those who express, represent, and live the scriptures on a daily basis. They are indeed an example. Also, to our friends of other faiths, those faiths underpinning all they do for their communities and for our own community. You see, we have a responsibility here. It's a prime opportunity for faith communities and for civic dignitaries and parliamentarians to work together. We, as religious communities, have a responsibility to speak honestly but graciously, pointing out our particular point of view. And you have a responsibility to listen to us, often very patiently, and try to look for the core of what we are saying and sometimes not how we're saying it. Many people look at faith and Christianity in this nation and say that Christianity is weak, that faith is futile, and that politics are corrupt and that they can never work together. 
I would love them to be in this room today, to see this gathering, to see this fellowship, to see this power, to see this witness that is indeed light in every way. And that represents much of what we all stand for. We gather also here as Christians. It doesn't make us exclusive. It doesn't make us neglecting of any other community. But we gather as Christians to give thanks for the, all, for the whole of God's creation in every form, in every shape, in every person. And to say that we are committed to our journey along with all. It's a pertinent year and a pertinent time to give thanks also for our great monarch, Her Majesty the Queen. Her years of effective ministry and service at the most glorious and at the most testing of times. During which she has shown both by word and deed that her faith is very much the foundation of her strength, of her faithfulness and of all she does. Long may she reign. I'm humbled to stand here amongst this wonderful hall. So many of you, and I look around and see so many friends who have been instrumental, effective in speaking for those who are indeed voiceless, both here and across the Middle East. We gather for those who are vulnerable and in looking at the Middle East and Christians in the Middle East and indeed Christians in other places, they are indeed vulnerable. And I personally give thanks for your work, for all that you do, and assure you of my prayers and that of my church, as well as our brothers and sisters across the Middle East, both there and represented here, for your work to continue and your witness to continue powerfully. I'm thankful that I have learned much being here for over 20 years and being able to use what I have learned to both communicate with, represent, and be in solidarity with my brothers and sisters in the Middle East and my brothers and sisters here and being a point of connection and being a point of being able to sometimes be an interpreter. You know, we speak differently, we express differently. And one plea I will have for you all today is that when you hear people from the Middle East speaking, Sometimes it sounds like a rant because it comes from a place of emotion, a place of pain. It comes from an experience that needs to be communicated. They, of course, must learn to communicate in a way that is comprehended and accepted, but we must also learn to listen in a way that is sensitive and appreciative of what we may not have experienced ourselves. The situation of Christians in the Middle East is a difficult one. At the moment, the statistics will tell us there are about four, five percent as a general population that would represent the Christian community. Four of those five percent, 80 percent of Christians in the Middle East are in Egypt, which means the rest are indeed spread very thin. But this has not happened overnight. This has been an eventual outcome of years, decades, centuries 
of persecution, marginalization, of a systemic, sometimes, and sporadic at others, targeting of those Christian and faith communities. It has been difficult in a place which has been a, a home for Christians, the birthplace of Christianity, in a place that has been faithful to its calling, being a cradle of so many civilizations, there is now a huge exodus of those who would have called these nations their homes and communities for millennia and a pain for those who continue. Of course, Egypt is no stranger to persecution. The Christians of Egypt have been living one form of persecution or another since the first century. But like Christians, other Christians in the Middle East, we are persecuted but do not see ourselves as victims. This is part of the cross we carry and part of the journey we have. Egypt welcomed the infant Christ indeed as a refugee seeking asylum with his family. And I hope that as we make decisions here, we look for the face of Christ in every person seeking that refuge. It is easy to look at those coming as being opportunists. But as I've said time and time again, people do not leave their homes, their communities, everything they know if they are comfortable where they are. The fact that they must leave, whether because persecuted or looking for a better future for their families, means that they cannot enjoy these things where they should be able to enjoy them. Many continue to suffer under an inconceivable medieval context that is so remote and so foreign to our 21st century context now. We seem to have regressed because this would have been unacceptable 100 years ago. But with our international treaties, our human rights charters, and our many, many agreements that we all sign up to, it seems to still be happening. There's an exceptional situation in Syria where half of the population is displaced. And they are by no, no means not only Christians. They're Christians, Muslims, many other communities. We've seen what has happened to the Yazidi community in Iraq, and so on and so forth. Christians in the Middle East reject minority status because they see themselves as intrinsic members of those communities. They live there as indigenous people whose families have been there for millennia. But they, of course, have never ever said that they will not share these lands with others of any faith or none, but that they not be relegated to a minority status that strips them of their right to be equal. We must make the conversation on persecution relevant and real. Not speaking of just Christians, but speaking of the rights of every person made by God in his image and his likeness to enjoy 
the freedom that he himself has given us, even to the extent of rejecting him. He gives us that opportunity, he gives us that right. Surely we should not deprive each other of it, to choose him how we wish or to indeed reject him, but to value his image and his likeness that continues within each and every one of us. This is a wonderful opportunity for us to work together, to collaborate. There needs to be a realization that the current problem, the current situation, is greater than us all and needs us all to work together. You see, the Middle East seems so far away when we are thinking and speaking of things happening over there. But in the world today, with social media, with communications, there is no more over there. We are one very large community. Those communities are represented in your constituencies, in our churches, in our society as a whole. We can no longer live in silos where a Coptic Christian may never have seen anyone else for his or her life, or a British Anglican, likewise. Our paths cross, our experience is one, and our journey is one that we must share. Their family members and friends are being persecuted on a daily basis, and they need to be represented by us here. So the question comes, are we the keepers of our brothers and sisters? Well, the scriptures tell us we are, because when God asked one particular brother about his other brother, the answer was clear. Just outside this wonderful building across the road at Westminster Abbey, there is a beautiful monument to the innocent victims. That memorial there is one that I remember every time I walk past. And the inscription is, is it nothing to you who walk by? Can we walk by? Can we forget what's happening? Of course we can't. These are our brothers and our sisters. These are part of us. There is no more time, my sisters and brothers, for speaking of Christians of the East and West. Our body, the body of Christ, is not a divided one. There is no left and right side of that body. It is one body, and the pain of any member of that body is a pain to the whole body. Likewise, there is no time for us to speak of a Muslim East and a Christian West. Because those expressions, by definition, mean that there is no place for me as a Christian in the Middle East, neither is there a place for a Muslim here in the West. And neither of those are true. 
because those rights are open to us all. I am blessed and privileged to know that Britain, both in its leadership and in its people, is not a place that walks by. We have seen this in the wonderful work of our humanitarian organizations. Indeed, our whole population that gives so faithfully and so generously every time something happens, our parliament, our armed forces, our religious communities, average men and women who contribute. And this is an example to the whole world. We give thanks for the conference that just happened to support Syria and the surrounding region, and we look forward to outcomes of that. As I was very thankful being in Istanbul for the World Humanitarian Summit weeks ago to see such an incredibly large British presence, both from NGOs and diplomatic and political groups as well. As religious and civic leaders, we have a responsibility to change the narrative and the expectation of the world. To move it from one of hopelessness and conflict to one of hope and promise. To introduce nuanced ways of speaking about the problem there and solutions. We have to address the reality of the complexity of the situation in the Middle East. Burying our heads in the sand or walking away from it or just pretending like it's any other conflict will not solve anything. It is an international, interreligious, multidisciplinary issue that needs to be addressed at that level. We need to address the fact that there has been silence over decades where there has been a gradual prejudice, marginalization, alienation of Christians and minority communities. This does not have to continue on our watch. This does not have to continue on our watch. The status quo can be changed. Now is the time that we can speak because the world has suddenly realized that it needs to listen. It has realized that the various challenges and things that are happening need us to collaborate. It's a time for us to collaborate because unprecedented times call for unprecedented collaborative approaches. Whether it's interchurch and interdenominational, interreligious, cross-party, between these great houses, and please, indeed, between government departments. That collaboration is needed. Regardless of which house one sits in, which church pew one worships at, or indeed which faith one does or does not follow, we must stand together for God-given rights. And we must speak together with a collaborative voice. We must also realize that this is not ours to carry alone. 
This is not a burden for us to carry. This is what God carries with us. And I'm reminded of the account of Nehemiah in Scripture, where he is inspired and driven to go back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and Jerusalem. And he says to his people after he gathers them, the God of heaven will indeed prosper us, but we, his servants, shall arise and build. All we can do is build our little section of the bigger wall. And when we all work together, that comes together and brings us into the reality and truth of what we're trying to do, to speak for those less fortunate. You know, in the Christian family, we know, as we read in Romans, that we have many members, members of one body, but all members have the same, not, not all members have the same function when complement one another. And that is so true of our wider human family. Our Lord is referred to as the chief advocate in the Gospel of St. Luke, where he has been anointed to preach the gospel, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those oppressed. And as Christians, that is where we take our lead, from him directly. But the one thing we must say that in the midst of the darkness of the Middle East, we see light in the witness and life of our brothers and sisters. They are defiant, they are resilient, they are faithful, they are powerful. Again, that is the mystery of Christianity. Power in apparent defeat, even life after an empty tomb. And that is what we remember. The fight is not ours. We are, ju we are just part of a calling. The message of forgiveness we have seen from families of men brutally butchered in Libya last year, 21 Coptic Christians, whose families just said, we forgive. I remember hashtagging Father Forgive after that huge account, that, that, that significant occurrence, and people just didn't understand. How could you forgive those who have killed members of your community, innocent members? Well, of course, that's what we're called to. That's what we need to do. We can't separate ourselves from the pain that is happening, that is being caused. But what we must do is stand together firmly. These people can no longer be tolerated. Tolerance is not accepted. We must work to have them recognized as faithful and valued members of a society in which they have lived and contributed for so long. Gospel of St. Mark tells us that we should love our neighbor as ourselves, and this is the greatest commandment. As a Christian, I cannot be selective as to who I love or don't love, or indeed who I forgive or don't forgive. It is a blanket commandment that is binding. It is something we are all called to do. This is an opportunity. This gathering is light in that darkness. The spirit here is light in that darkness. The opportunity for collaboration is light in that darkness. And if that indeed is true, then where is the darkness that could overcome 
this amount of light. The future of the church in the Middle East? Well, we're a resilient bunch, as Christians and as Middle East Christians. And the biggest nightmare is putting a Middle East Christian in a British context where you gather the resilience of those two groups and you have something that is pretty unbreakable. Unbreakable not for any other reason, but because we have the power of Christ. Following the example of our brethren in the Middle East and around the world, we repeat the words of Psalm 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. Lord, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The church was, is, and will be, because it is the body of Christ. The church struggling and the church victorious will be united because of the defiance and the strength. The church is defiant, the church is resilient, and the church is alive. And in closing, I want to share two passages with you. First, despite the challenges that are faced, especially by our brothers and sisters in the Middle East, we say to them, what we hear in Revelations 1.9. We share with you in Jesus the persecution and the kingdom and the patient endurance. And with them, we say the words that we heard so eloquently read earlier. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persecuted. We are all persecuted but I am also confident that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, powers, or anything present, none of this shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord.